I felt stunned after seeing the cosmic size of Everest and getting the aerial view of the world from 30,000 feet. It also gave me a new perspective and a better sense to size of my problems in life. That was Dalip Shikawit, and this is episode 30 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today we are talking with Dalip Shakawat, a passionate educator and mountaineer and an ultra runner who grew up in the Himalayas and now calls Winnipeg home. Dalip has climbed over 15 mountain peaks and climbed Mount Everest on May 16, 2019. Currently, Dalip works at St. Amant School as a special education teacher and he is also a member of Royal Winnipeg Rifles, a primary reserve infantry reg- regiment of the Canadian Army. Dalip found his passion for running during his training for Mount Everest, but has continued racking up the miles since. As a way to give back, he has raised funds for multiple charitable organizations through his running, including St. Amant and Wounded Warriors. And last year, he founded the Rising Runners Running Group. He is also a father of two boys and a brand ambassador for Salmon Canada. Without further ado, let's talk to Dalip. So we are so thrilled today to have Dalip on the podcast with us. Dalip, welcome to Inspired Souls podcast. Thank you, Carolyn and Kim, for inviting me. Um, you are definitely somebody that has been on my mind for quite a while to have a ge- as a guest on the podcast. We always look for people with interesting, inspiring stories to tell. Um, I think our listeners are going to find this episode quite a lot of both of those things. So before we get into it, can you please give our listeners a, a bit of a summary about yourself? I'm Dalip Shikavat. I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I work at St. Amon School as a special education teacher, and I'm a member of Royal Winnipeg Rifles, a primary reserve infantry regiment of Canadian Army. I'm father of two boys, 17-year-old Uday and 9-year-old Aryan. Both the boys have interest in running and climbing. My wife, Parul, is a teacher in Louis Real School Division, and she enjoys mild to moderate outdoor activities with us. Excellent. And maybe now you could tell us just a little bit about, since you mentioned climbing, like a little bit about your climbing history and your running history. How did you get into all of this? Uh, So I'll start with the running history. (laughs) So I had a lot of experience with hiking and climbing, but I never ran any formal race until 2017. As a youth growing up in the foothills of Lesser Himalayas, I regularly went on hikes, which grew longer As I grew older, my running journey began in 2017. After climbing 7,000 meter peak in 2016, I started planning and preparing on climbing Mount Everest. For that, I needed a gradual and structured approach to the longer training program. I created a training program to train year round and plan for a peak in training just a little before the climb. Out of many forefronts, one of the training stratagem I chose was trail running to cross train and ultra running specifically was directly applicable to mountain speed climbing. I'm going to interject a bit there. So yeah. why, why did you f- figure that running and particularly ultra running was going to be applicable? Yes. So 
with the belief that uh, there is always a chance to be extraordinary and fight through the pain and suffering to test my limits and discover how far I can push myself. So I wanted to increase my cardio and endurance to go longer because uh, at Everest, you need that 36 hours of stamina and endurance, which I think running, ultra running has that capacity Mm -hmm. to give it to me. Interesting. Now, the last time, sorry to interject here, the last time that I checked Mount Everest was a very, very, very tall peak. And the last time I checked Winnipeg was pretty (laughs) flat. How did you prepare for Everest while living in Manitoba? So I followed a very strict progressive training plan with a spiritual routine. I had set goals and indicators to track my progress. So what I did, I continued my climbing And then I did over distance to prepare for long days. Like I joined ultra running. I did multi-day hikes. I did winter camping. I ran a lot uh, during that time. I trained for dehydration and hunger tolerance. So which means I had only 500 ml of water during the day. And I ate only one meal in a day so that I have that tolerance. Then I, I trained for the cold so that I can increase my shivering threshold. I took shower throughout the like cold showers. I did uh, winter walks. I did winter running, winter hikes. So it was kind of building on it. And then on top of that, I did hypoxic training to increase my lung capacity. So I had go for fit mask, which I used uh, that uh, inhibit my oxygen intake and uh, so that my lung capacity can increase. And then I also had a 30 kg sandbag in my backpack, which I used to oh, carry wow. everywhere. <laughs> It was wow. like, uh, you know, my life partner for a few <laughs> Almost years. Almost 100 pounds. No, sorry, 60 pounds. Yeah, 60 Wow, pounds. 70, yeah. So I used that for walks. I used that for treadmill. I used that for Stairmaster, elliptical, and stairs. And I also added mask on top, go for fit mask to, to do that. And my lunch breaks were all, you know, stair climbing with that. So it was kind of fixation. But also the biggest role I would uh, add here is uh, the military training. So that was a great help. Being a soldier in Canadian forces, I learned toughness and tenacity, whether it's running up hills or rec sack or jerry cans, you know, or you're Mm -hmm. awake all night for a watch or dealing with lack of sleep or rest. The military has taught me to push through the mental and physical barriers. Mm -hmm. And I have learned to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, Our favorite mantra. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, my spiritual regime. So that is really important for me. Like it was not only just a climb for me. I meditated every day for about 20 minutes. And uh, all the pure energy that came from those quiet moments set me up for the day. And Mount Everest is also known as Mother Goddess of All Mountain. It believes uh, to hold divine power which attracts spiritual seekers from all over the world. And I awarded this climb as a pilgrimage and not an attack on the mountain. So when I meditated, I connected to the power and ambience of the mother goddess, which I'm referring to Mount Everest. I requested to secure my route from all dangers and visualize my success to the summit. And I surrendered myself to the mountain as a dust and be able to feel my oneness with the mountain. And I, I meditated even when I was at base camp pretty much every day. Why? Because in the death zone, you know, it's also known as domains of God. And climbers face 
near-death experience due to extreme fatigue, dehydration, extreme cold, low oxygen conditions. And in that state of body, you know, I felt the presence of spiritual powers around me. And I strongly believe that my spiritual connection to the divine gave me that permission to stand on the summit and return safely to the base camp. So uh, those were the two key key training I did and I practiced, and I think they helped me a lot. I think that's really important what you're talking about, because a lot of us will think immediately of the physical training, right? All of the physical preparations that you have to do. But you're really also talking equally, it sounds like, about the mental training and the spiritual training that you did. So if you were to try to weigh those things, like how important were each one of them? Were they equally important or was there an emphasis on on one over the other? I think they were equally important because uh, if I talk about spiritual connection, you know, you need to respect the mountains. Mm -hmm. And then during your meditation, you know, you overcome those fears and answer those tough questions that there are challenges. You are taking risks, you know, and uh, somewhere in back of your head, you have that feeling that, you know, don't go. You might die. But, you know, you, you answer those tough questions and you override those feelings and you're prepared mentally in a way when you when you talk to yourself. Yeah. Whereas physical training was more more kind of where you're going and what you're doing, you know, that involved that, uh, that intensity and that endurance to, to do the task. So, Dilip, you, you talk about this, you know, desire to climb Mount Everest. You kind of just threw it out there and then kept going. <laughs> um, you obviously deeply respect and have honored the mountain and the climb in how you've prepared and executed it. So, why? You know, have you always been drawn to this mountain since you were a child in the Himalayas or why did you choose to climb it? So there are multiple factors, you know, why I chose uh, Everest. I, I would say three reasons. One was deep sense of family duty and respect for my parents because I always seen my parents very committed and always valuing, you know, the country because being a from a soldier's family, you know, I always learned that to respect for country, country first uh, and family last. So that was my dad's theory. And also to bring honor and pride to the country and family. But the biggest thing I would say, uh, the drive when I moved to Canada was uh, I came face to face with my failures, disappointments and discriminations. And I embraced it with open heart and use that force of adversity to fuel my passion and turn it into an opportunity to learn new things. So that was a biggest drive, I would say, uh, especially when I moved here, because I have to start from scratch. You know, everything was different and you have to unlearn what you learned there because of different values. And that gave me an opportunity that where you have to find that edge to grow. And, and I converted everything into training so everything I was looking out for those those opportunities where I can feed my ego and push myself harder for this climb. Okay, so before we move on to talk about all the other um, running adventures that you've had post Everest, I, I want to just I got to interject this. You mentioned wearing a hypoxic mask. You mentioned running with a weighted pack and cold showers and all this kind of stuff. Did you ever do the hypox? tent did you sleep in a tent at all no but i actually climbed you know i have done so many 
clients with so I had experience uh, so if I can say my in 2002 and 2006 I completed my basic and advanced mountaineering course any advanced mountaineering course they take you up to 6000 meters just to test you how you're going to do at that altitude but uh, you know over the years I climbed 15 peaks from ranging from different altitude I did high altitude hikes so that kind of built me up for those uh, you know altitude adaptations and then 17000 meter was uh, the actual uh, indicator for me that you know i'm ready for the summit because i didn't need any oxygen during my 17000 meter climb we were 20 climbers and only four summited we saw high altitude sickness among other climbers and i was okay my sherpa was very confident that i'm i'm ready to shoot for everest so And you did. You ended up summiting. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, my house here in Winnipeg sits at 730 feet above sea level. You don't maintain the blood red blood cell adaptations mm-hmm. forever, but yet it sounds to me like you're kind of alluding to the fact you think you've adapted throughout your lifetime to being at high altitude and even living in Winnipeg for a long period of time between these summits hasn't taken all that away. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but do you think you've maintained certain adaptations then? Yeah, I think uh, our body is such a such a great uh, machine, you know, when you try it, you know, you know how, that how wonderful it is. So what we do in Everest, you know, we we go there, we acclimatize. So there is a lot of acclimatization and uh, we do a kind of acclimatization training before we even go up to higher camps. So Right. So when we go to base camp, uh, it's itself is five thousand four hundred fifty meters. So that we rest there for one week, and that is a lot of altitude for you know people who have never done that height. So I was fine, and then we start our rotation to camp one, camp two, and camp three is the last rotation that is at seven thousand three hundred meters. So the Sherpas will know that how your body is reacting in the first rotation, and they will tell you that. you are ready or not and then we all we do second rotation after two weeks so that way your body is creating that red red cells and acclimatizing to the environment so the the, the key here is like we never took any day as a rest like in in person there were people who were going going down to lower camps and partying but i was climbing on the other peaks which were which were in the surrounding So I never rested any day. I wanted my body to be tuned and merge into, you know, the surroundings so that way it adapts quickly and I have more red blood cells. I thought we could maybe go back a little bit and for our listeners that aren't familiar with Mount Everest, like how high is this mountain? How long does it take you? Like you're alluding to you kind of went there, you spent some time at base camp and then acclimatized and then you went up and acclimatized. So but how long did the whole thing take you? How many sherpas did you have? How many people were in your group? Like I just for a little background i my husband and i climbed mount kilimanjaro i think it was mm-hmm. 2007 and uh that's just under 6000 meters uh, yeah. and we were like we had quite a lot of altitude sickness high altitude sickness from just up there and so in comparison how high is is everest just to put it in context so everest is 5 and 1/2 vertical miles high from the ground and it is 8848 meters and it took us uh, 50 days 
to do that climb. Uh, I had one Sherpa, my personal Sherpa, which I knew from my previous climb. So that bonding was really helpful to, to do the whole whole summit because you are attached to that Sherpa and they, they go elbow to elbow, especially after Camp 3. And uh, I was the team leader of our international team there. We had 20 members, but slowly and slowly people started dropping out and only six were left. On final day, 12th of May, because that was the 16th of May was the summit window and we have to start from base camp on 12th. So because it takes almost four days to, to summit and come back to base camp. And once you're at camp three, that's the last 36 hours you have to be up there. And that is like really uh, in the death zone for for at least that 36 hours of duration. Why 36 hours? So, it, you know, everything slows down as you go up because your speed is so slow. Uh, every step is 10 breath. And then you are carrying uh, oxygen mask and oxygen cylinder. And uh, your space automatically slows down because of high altitude. So they don't say you have 36 hours and if you don't get up, you're out. It's just that's how long it took you is 36 hours. Yeah, usually it takes, it depends, like some of the climbers might be faster, but on an average, it's 36 hours because uh, as you go, you know, there is a time to start and we always start at midnight. Whenever Mm -hmm. if you reach like at four o'clock, we have to rest for uh, three, four hours and wait for that, that time to come. Because uh, otherwise, if you are in the wrong time, the winds pick up, weather can change. So they study all these weather patterns, and then that's how the weather window. Does it ever get busy up there? Like if there's just this kind of magic window for summiting, I would imagine that there would be lots of groups that wanted to summit. Does oh, oh, it yeah, get busy? It's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's <laughs> it's like a big lineup of people, especially, you know, at in the death zone, that's the most dangerous because your oxygen has a seven to eight hours of oxygen in it. And if you're standing there and waiting for your turn, especially people on the knife ridge, that is the last uh, point, 300 meter stretch. And there's a hillary step. Only one person can go either up or come down. And people sometimes take 20 minutes or more. Oh, wow. So, so that is the time. And my Sherpa was smart. Like he has done Everest 12 times already. So he he knew that we don't want to get up, uh, get caught up in that line. Mm-hmm. So we climbed on 16th of May, whereas the main crowd uh, waited for the longer window, which was on 23rd. You must have seen that picture uh, of big lineup. Yes. Well, that's why I ask about the 36 hour, you know, time limit. I wondered if it was literally like a booking, like, I know it gets busy up there. So do you have at camp three so much time before there's other people coming into camp three and you've got to get out of there kind of thing? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky part. So my Sherpa like was always three hours ahead of everybody's start time so that he, he can save, uh, save time and we can get some rest up there. Wow. So that head start gave us that uh, edge to to be up there first on the summit and not get into that lineup or any other thing. Well, we could talk for an entire podcast on this Mount Everest climb, I'm sure. But I, I do want to move into asking you a little bit about what you continue to do after you climb Mount Everest in 2019. I know you went on to continue running and you did tell us pre-podcast that you actually lost parts of your toes on Everest and have continued to run a lot since. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So, yeah, I got frostbite after Everest. And as a result, you know, I couldn't run for five months. 
And that was so frustrating for me because I gained such a high momentum after climbing summit and uh, I ended up with those frostbite and I couldn't even now walk properly. With that frustration, I decided to to sign up for for the Baudry Park 24-hour <laughs> that uh, that race. I think I met you there too. Yes. But due to pain, you know, I couldn't continue uh, because I had fresh stitches. I had my surgery in September. So uh, I, I ended up doing 12.6 miles, but it gave me a great sense of satisfaction that, you know, at least I took that challenge and I went out there. The conditions were not the best, you know, as Baudry oh. Park is famous for that. So... To put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, you know, I I started building on that. I did a lot of walking, slow running to get back to my original pace. And you know, I came back in 2022 and I ran over 2,000 miles. I completed three concourse challenges virtually. I ran 280 miles for the Grand Canyon Challenge, 480 miles for Camino de Santiago Challenge. I did 825 miles for Ring Road Iceland Challenge. And then I decided, you know, because I felt that I was wounded and I have to respect for the soldiers who, who go through that, that pain and trauma. So I decided to run 500 kilometers for them. And then the COVID hit. So I said, you know what? If situation has changed, my goal has to change. So I, I added 200 kilometers to, to my goal and I did 700 kilometers for wounded warriors. Then I also ran 250k in six days as part of the Wounded Warrior Challenge because uh, what my original plan was for Wounded Warrior was to to run 500 kilometers over variable topography to stimulate the physical adversities these warriors face. You know, so my plan was to run a marathon in cold, heat, mountain, hills, and plains. Oh, I love it. Just to raise, aware, raise awareness. But because of COVID, all my races got canceled. But I said, you know, 250 kilometer which was supposed to be Marathon de Sabla, you know, I said, I'm going to do exactly the same, you know, routine, what, what how they run. So I exactly followed the same, same uh, structure, what they have. So a lot of people during COVID, you know, when COVID hit, they actually reduced their mileage and lost their motivation and canceled their plans. You did the opposite. You decided, heck, let's throw another... 250 kilometers onto my 500 kilometer run. Um, that's amazing. So can you give our listeners, you know, a, a little bit more background on the Wounded Warriors run and what it is and what it means? Okay, so Wounded Warrior, you know, I uh, to honor the fallen and support the ill and injured soldiers, uh, veterans, first responder and their families affected by wars and peacekeeping missions. My appeal was to raise $5,000 and all the proceed goes towards the mental health programs and uh, the families in need. I just wanted to honor them by running 700 kilometer and raise funds for them. It hit me like, you know, I went through that pain and suffering. So it was an uh, eye opener for me that, you know, I, I should give full respect to what they go through. You know, you just mentioned fundraising. And that seems to be something that you are inclined to do is to give back in a large way through your running. We didn't mention when we were talking about Everest earlier that you did raise a significant amount of money for St. Amant, where you work and the foundation there with that climb. And then you also post climb and in COVID ran the St. Amant Free Spirit Festival, which was seven and a half marathons in seven days. So can you just give us a little bit more background maybe on 
what this fundraising was about for St. Amon and what they used the funds for, and then a little bit more about this Free Spirit Festival. You know, uh, working at St. Amon is a privilege. You know, it's it's all, it's almost 11 years working there, and I, every day is so refreshing and fulfilling for me. I help raise funds for St. Amon Foundation, and the foundation funds the programs at the St. Amon Center that provides access to recreational and leisure resources for Manitobans with developing disabilities and autism. So being active and being involved, it's aligning to the core values of the organization. And I really feel that, you know, I'm doing my part. So amazing what you're doing. And I'm curious, like, because these are such big undertakings. I know big things like this change people. So I'm wondering how these experiences have have changed you and maybe what you've learned about yourself along the way by putting yourself in all of these very uncomfortable situations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I would say uh, after climbing Mount Everest, it has made a huge impression on me. I felt stunned after seeing the, the cosmic size of Everest and getting the aerial view of the world from 30,000 feet. That has helped me to understand the magnitude of relationship between man and the mountain. It also gave me a new perspective and a better sense to size up my problems in life. Mm. So, you know, we always uh, live in a very cozy and warm environment. When things get tough, we quit or we, you know, we move away from it. Uh, What I learned is to create a system and uh, use this as a motivation. That's where growth is, you know, you need to find that edge and face it. And do you think that it requires situations like this? Like you're alluding to our lives, they actually are fairly comfortable for most of us, right? For a lot of us, I shouldn't say for most of us, but many of us have very comfortable lives and we almost have to manufacture these challenging situations for ourselves to to be able to, to have the sort of fertile soil for these growth and learnings to come about. Is that sort of what keeps you coming back for more of them, would you say? Yes, I think it's all uh, mental resiliency and that uh, the big thing I would like to say here is not all the challenges are real, you know. Uh, Through self-discipline and commitment to the plan, we all have the power to pull off the impossible. We do, we do. So obviously these experiences have changed you. You started running as a where to prepare for this massive climb. And I'm wondering if your relationship with running and how you're approaching running now post-Everest has changed. So, yeah, although running is physically very draining, it's mentally and emotionally recharging. For Mm -hmm. me, it's an opportunity to simply escape. You know, whenever I had rough days, running made me feel better. I call it a moving meditation. The natural rhythm of running tunes my mind and body and I connect with nature. It allows me to listen to my inner voice and let go all my daily clutters and I feel relaxed after. So I can call myself a full-time runner now because running has eventually transformed me into a concrete routine of staying fit and healthy and I've started taking on bigger challenges. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you know, I I rarely sit still myself. I have people criticize me a lot because I'm always on the go and they say, you need to meditate more. And I say, well, I do. I meditate when I'm running. Yeah. <laughs> That's my meditation time. So and not everybody gets that, but it's true. Um, 
it is a mental break uh, for the most part. Yeah. What does your wife and, and kids think about all of this? They must have been thrilled when you not only summited Mount Everest, but also made it safely back down, because that's really the ultimate goal, isn't it? You know, my wife and my kids are very supportive, and they they enjoy listening to me, and I share my experience with them. And I always tell them, you know, the longer route is the shortest route, and get the things harder way, so that way it's, you feel it easy after so those are like some of the lessons I, I told them and they, they, they're good at listening and they, they're following my footprints and they want to go for longer hikes and runs. And, you know, my son did 50K in 2019 and my younger one is now going for 10K. So, you know, they are, they are into it. So after you got back from Everest, uh, you received some recognition from the Manitoba Legislative Assembly. Tell us about that. So, well, I don't know what happened, you know. So I got a, a certificate uh, from uh, Rochelle Squares that, you know, you're doing a great work in the community. You you founded a, a new running group and we see you guys running and doing activities. There are a lot of news in the newspaper. So she wanted to learn more about uh, uh, things, you know. So that was the reason why I got recognized because I wanted... Uh, to be out there available, helping community build, because with that gain momentum, people wanted to follow me in a way that, you know, uh, I could give them something back. And I think uh, giving the community service is the best way to, to pay my dues. So you started a group called Rising Runners. Tell us more about that. Rising Runners. Okay, that's that's going to be a, a longer run. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So uh, during my ultra runs, I observed less representation from South Asian community. And I found that there is a gap uh, that need to be filled. So I wanted to encourage others to join the ultra world. After being inspired from the running incentives, I founded running group in January 2020 and then later named it Rising Runners. So my vision was to inspire South Asian community to take part in running and adventure sports. So how it started? It started with a group of five brave women who came forward to take on this new challenge. We started group runs in March. Gradually, the friends and families of participants started noticing changes in the energy and mood of participants and felt motivated. And they decided to give it a try. All these participants needed was a slight push to say, them, say to themselves, no more excuses. By the end of July, we grew our number to 30. So on October 11th, 2020, 25 novice runners ran their first marathon relay. They, they did it virtually. The joy of finishing the run was hard to express in the words. All these runners trained hard for over seven months. They had 25 weeks of progressive training plan with specific training routines for individuals such as speed works, core workout, tempo runs, 10K boot camps, all that helped them to improve their threshold. And then running helped them to overcome their hesitation and realizing their true potential. I can say I was there for every run, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. That helped me to do 2,000 miles in a year because I, I saw them growing every day. They were improving. You know, that gave me great satisfaction of that 
community service. Then we came up with a mission uh, for Rising Runners that was camaraderie through fitness. Rising Runners were not only confined to uh, now group runs or individual runs. Now we are a bigger group. We are synergy. So we started uh, doing hit sessions. We started doing uh, trail cleaning because we need to maintain those trails where we run. Uh, we distributed food hampers during Christmas. We did meal delivery to homeless people. We volunteer in community events. We organized hikes and camping. We did cultural potlucks. We collaborate and support with agencies, and we we did fundraising and charity events for for other other organizations. So it's like it's taking a bigger shape. And now, if I see that uh, we are almost sixty six members. So, and we are going like since pandemic, we have been busy with the uh, Winter Warrior Challenge. We did 10 day mental, mental health run where 31 participants uh, were there. We did 1,650 kilometers. And all those are like middle age runners who never ran in their life. So, it's an opportunity because there's nobody's judging them. It's not a competition. You, It's a healthy lifestyle. You just have to push past that barrier of, you know, coming out and feel confident, you know, okay. There is someone who, who is at my level who wanted to, to share their experience. Wow. So this is amazing. You know, I, I knew at a high level view of what Rising Winners was, but I had no idea all of the things that you do. It's not just about running. You know, do you have to be South Asian to be part of this group? It sounds no. like something I would love to be a part of. <laughs> You're already an elite runner. Everybody's welcome, you know. That's awesome. My, my second question is... Have you essentially been coaching this group yourself or do you have other people that are involved in developing these training plans for the runners? Okay, so what happened uh, as we grew, you know, I knew that our number is bigger now. It's it's tough to manage. So we, we created a chat group uh, where I'm the lead member and then I have core committee. So I appointed five members who have been, uh, you know, very committed. And th- these five members uh, then assigned teams, you know, that so now we have six teams have further team members that's how we coordinate all these events so now we have our group running started from last week and we are we are training for marathon now so this uh, 2021 marathon we have uh, almost 66 members going this year for manitoba marathon wow and and honestly as we all know as runners sometimes the hardest part is just coming out to that first run, right? Once you're there and you're in the momentum of the group, it kind of takes care of itself. So I love what you're doing. You are clearly a model citizen <laughs> and and we're always wondering what's next for somebody like you. Do you have any plans for 2021 and beyond? Yes, uh, you know, there is always next thing, you know. So I'm currently training for Mont Blanc 90K the legendary race in Chamonix Valley of France that is scheduled mm-hmm. for June 2021. And then I have Swamp Donkey Adventure Race and Manitoba Marathon, which are in September. In October, I'm going for Marathon de Sable that I hope it happens this year, uh, which is a six-day ultra marathon in Sahara Desert in Morocco. And then I recently uh, signed up for North Pole Marathon, uh, which is in uh, April 2023 but I'm also in waiting list for 2022. Those are some hefty goals you've got for this year. I'm, I'm wondering, do you think you're actually going to get out of Canada? Do you think you're going to get to Chamonix in June? I think so, because if it happens, I'm going because awesome. I'm ready for it. 
You know? That's awesome. I actually um, got into CCC at UTMB the end of August, and I'm trying to, I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers. So if, if you go to Chamonix in June, you can chart the course and then come back and give me all the information. Yeah, and I'm going to be climbing Mont Blanc too. So that's oh, that's the plan. Awesome. I'll stay one more week and do that. Well, once you're over there, for sure. Yeah. All right. So our first rapid fire question is, do you have a favorite mantra? Yes. Uh, so before Everest, it was uh, metamorphosis because uh, it's evolution and you have to get harder and the caterpillar will turn into butterfly after the summit. So that happened. Uh, after Everest, it's strong and ready. So now I have to be strong and ready to serve. That's my current motto. Man, you could get that tattooed somewhere on your body. That's that's a great, <laughs> great mantra or life motto. Okay, so if you could be, you know, dropped anywhere on the planet tomorrow to run, forget about races, just to run, where would it be? It is the mystic hills of Trihorn. Every month I ran uh, last year there, 50K. There is something about those hills. Those hills are so majestic. You know, I, I can't resist those those hills. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you've mentioned a few races that you have upcoming, but is there one particular race that stands out as a bucket list race? North Pole Marathon. Do you have a favorite running book or movie you'd like to share with us? Yes, I have a movie and a book. A uh, book is Surviving the Extremes by Kenneth Candler. And it talks about what happens to the body and mind at the limits of human endurance. It, it gives a real life examples uh, on surviving jungle, desert, high altitude, high sea and outer space. And I'm trying to do some of those uh, uh, experiments with myself. And for the movie, I have Meru, Mount St. Elias and K2. Excellent. And do you have a favorite post-run or post-climb indulgence? Yes, my favorite is sleep. (laughs) (laughs) The best. (laughs) Tell us more. So I think sleep is a very important factor when your body is extremely fatigued. When after doing so many climbs, so many long hikes, runs, you know, what your body needs actually is, is rest. And after the even two hours of rest, you're ready to go back again. So I think that is the um, most important factor for me uh, to recover and go back uh, to your task. So, Dilip, where can people find you if they wanted to learn more about you? Do you have a place that you can point people? Well, I have an account on Facebook by Sheikh DLS. That's my ID. And I'm also uh, in a Rising Runner group on Strava. Mm-hmm. where we have uh, most of the members logging their distance and, uh, you know, we do our team runs there. Okay, so before we wrap this up, are the, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yes, uh, I would like to say that uh, climbing Everest was my why. Uh, I knew that it's my goal and nobody's going to tell me to wake up at 4 o'clock, punch in 10,000 hours of endurance training, and run 5,000 kilometers to train for Everest. Most of my journey to victory was lonely, exhausting, and painful. And uh, my message is you have to chase pain, knock your fears and insecurities down, 
expand your tolerance for mental and physical suffering and rewire your neural path and successes will be all yours. And on that note, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.